You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights Booksellers and Publishers events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and tonight we are delighted to be celebrating in conjunction with our friends at Duke University Press, the publication of a very significant new book chronicling the rise and fall of the underground music and art scene in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, between the late 80s and the early 2010s. Uh, The book is titled The Williamsburg Avant-Garde Experimental Music and Sound on the Brooklyn Waterfront. Drawing on interviews, archival collections, musical recordings, and much, much more, the book explores the scene's social, its cultural, and economic dynamics, really placing Williamsburg at the epicenter of New York's experimental culture. Uh, So we're pleased to have with us tonight the book's author, Cisco Bradley, discussing in depth this wonderful new work. Cisco is the Associate Professor of History at the Pratt Institute and author of Universal Tonality, The Life and Music of William Parker, also published by Duke University Press. He's going to be joined tonight by none other than Lee Rinaldo. He is a Grammy-nominated musician, composer, visual artist, writer, and producer. Many of you, of course, know of him as the founding member of Sonic Youth, and most recently of his own solo projects, as well as collaborations with groups like Glacial Trio and Text of Light. Uh, So really a pleasure to have them both with us tonight. Before we begin, as is customary at the outset of each event, I would like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Cisco Bradley and Lee Ronaldo. Gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Cisco, it's nice to uh, e-meet you. We haven't met in person, but uh, I wanted to ask you where you are located at the moment. Are you in New York somewhere? Uh, I'm normally in New York. I happen to be in Washington, D.C. at the moment. Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm in lower Manhattan in New York. Um, (laughs) This is the book we're going to be talking about. I've I've had the pleasure of uh, sitting with it for the last week or two. Uh, The Williamsburg Avant-Garde Experimental Music and Sound on the Brooklyn waterfront. And um, I just want to commend you on the depth of the research of this thing. I mean, it's really just uh, incredible how much uh, it's it's incredible, incredible and apparent how much work went into this uh, searching out um, all these diverse uh, happenings that were going on in this period. Uh, As Peter mentioned, the period the book covers, what would you call the period the book covers? Mid 80s to mid aughts or something like that? Uh, it covers basically 1988 to 2014. Okay, yeah. okay. All right, a little bit a little bit later than I thought. Um, so, um, you know, I have some questions to ask you and, and I'm sure we'll, 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 it'll prompt some discussion between us and there'll be time at the end uh, for uh, questions from the, the crowd. Uh, but I, we thought that we would start with you uh, talking for, you know, giving your brief introduction and uh, maybe reading some passages from the book to get get a feel for the language and the flow. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I thought I'd just talk briefly about the book itself and then I will read a couple of sections. Um, so this book took about 10 years to write. Uh and I think, thankfully, I didn't know what I was getting into when I started it. You know, I think uh, probably think I was crazy to do it again. You know, I I began in twenty, really about twenty thirteen. I began to, uh, you know, to interview musicians that were that had been involved in the music scene in Brooklyn, and you know, with the intention of writing a book, you know, a comprehensive book about you know the whole scene, kind of from from its origins to the present. And then I realized, you know, I think, you know, after a, a year or two of working on it, that 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 would be an impossible book to write, or or impossibly long, uh, as as the case might be. So, I kind of shifted into, 
you know, really focusing on what had happened in, uh, in Williamsburg, since that was one of the real starting points for a lot of uh, what came later. So, uh, you know, I began, um, you know, sort of comprehensively interviewing people. And I did, I did do, I think it was 182 interviews over the course of about eight or nine years. Um, and, you know, talked with so many different people. And the book covers a wide range. When it says avant-garde, you know, it really means everything from, you know, I tried to capture really a spectrum of musics rather than try to, you know, just focus in on one. And so um, there's certainly punk and post-punk in the book. There's quite a bit of noise. Uh, there's free jazz. Um, you know, there's some electronic stuff. There's, ex there's experimental DJ types of performances that I talk about a bit. Um, uh, I touch a little bit on indie rock. I don't go all the way into indie rock, but certainly stuff that I felt like was kind of on the, um, you know, on the kind of experimental edge of things. And then, uh, you know, I, I go into, especially in the later period, um, at the great Death by Audio uh, venue, that was one of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I look at you know, this sort of spectrum of stuff from post-punk to kind of avant metal to noise to, you know, everything in between with a lot of improv, you know, in, with improvisation being a real kind of glue to a lot of what is covered in the book. So a lot of cross genre things. So it, it ended up covering a lot of, a lot of range. And uh, so, you know, I felt like I learned a lot as I was going through it. Cause it was certainly musics that I knew better than others as I was approaching it. Um, but then, you know, the backdrop in the book really is, is thinking about how the city was changing. You know, why did, why, why did people go to Williamsburg in the first place? Why, why was that a conducive place for people to, um, you know, to, to make music for a while? And then why did it at some point become no longer conducive to people really in terms of a, of a, a really major community forming and being able to thrive? Um, so, yeah, I, in essence, I look at, you know, kind of, post-industrial New York in the 70s and 80s as, a, as the background, um, you know, that, that provided wide open warehouses for, for people to, uh, you know, to, 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 to take root in. And then, you know, I look at the process of gentrification, uh, which led to the mass displacement, not only of artists, of course, but lots of other people that, that lived in neighboring parts of Williamsburg. So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, that ends up being kind of the the rise and fall type of story, you know. Um, you know, thinking about you know how and there's a couple of anecdotes I always share with people. People talked about right up until about 1999. People said, you know, if you were walking down along the waterfront, you had to be you had to be cautious because, especially along Kent Avenue, between Kent Avenue and the river, um, you might be attacked by packs of roving wild dogs. I mean, people talk about that, and it comes up sort of regularly. It came up so many times in interviews. Um, sort of things like that, you know, where you just think, wow, it was a different New York. Um, you know, Williamsburg was the sort of waste processing center of the city. You know, that the whole city sent its garbage to Williamsburg to be, you know, processed. So, you know, it wasn't a, you know, for a long time, it hadn't been a very, you know, in some ways a very pleasant place, especially parts of North Williamsburg. Um, and I should say, I'm really talking about uh, the coastal parts of Williamsburg. Um, you know, and then things kind of rapidly changed, you know, by, you know, if someone could get, you know, say 15,000 square feet and rent that for, you know, under a thousand dollars in the eighties or nineties, you know, now, you know, one, a one bedroom might cost close, you know, close to five or six, depending on its location. Um, so I try to talk about that. Think about how the economic and just the, the, the rapid, you know, the rapidity of the change, um, um, you know, in terms of, you know, going from being this, this neighborhood of abandoned warehouses to luxury condos in about, you know, 20 years. So, um, so anyway, so I would love to jump in. Is, is there anything else you would like me to do before um, reading? No, I think it would be uh, fine to hear some passages from the book. Do you live in Williamsburg? Um, I've actually never lived in Williamsburg. I lived near it. I lived for many years. I lived in in Bushwick. Okay. So um, I mean, I, I moved to Bushwick. Were, yeah. I gather you were a real denizen of all of many of the places in the book that you uh, you write about. Yeah. 
And uh, from reading the book, I understood that at a certain point you were hosting, you know, one of the things that was happening in Williamsburg were like parties in backyards or house 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 concerts. And I understand that you you hosted a series uh, of those kind of concerts yourself. Yeah, I did run my own series, a, a kind of a loft type of series in Bushwick um, in from 2014 to 2018. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, that's something I thoroughly enjoyed. I thought it was just fantastic. I had a room, we could fit about 40 people jam packed, you know, probably, probably breaking fire code. So we were, you know, like we had, you know, I put on, I think about 35 shows over the course of three years, something like that. Usually did it about once a month. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I learned a lot through that process. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, like much of what occurred in Williamsburg, um, you know, I just talk about kind of art space, the, the difficulty to access art space, the difficulty to maintain it. And, you know, it's got been kind of the ongoing saga of New York, you know, venues closing, getting priced out, um, you know, but doing my, you know, running my own series, you know, I, I got to get some of the experience, I guess, of, of, of what that's like. Of course, you know, even gatherings like the ones I had, I think were technically not legal, you know, and I, I think the that's something else, you know, another thing I kind of think through the whole process is because um, art space is so hard to come by nowadays and our artists are constantly kind of being pushed into these marginalized spaces where they're expected to, you know, where they're kind of forced to work, I think. So anyway, that's, that's a, yep. another part of it. And that idea, the, the whole idea of loft concerts goes back to the 40s and 50s and jazz concerts. And it's been kind of a staple in of New York as, you know, yeah. as well as other places. but really it's been one of those New York things where, People are putting on concerts, selling beer under the table or whatever it is. And and yeah, Ill, illegal, but, you know, necessary for the artists uh, to have some place to go. Right. Well, and to this day, my favorite setting in which to consume art, like if I'm going to go out to a show, I'd much rather go to a loft show than a, than a, in a big concert hall. I just it, it, there's something about the intimacy, the connection. You can talk to the artists afterwards. You know, you just the sound is coming right at you from maybe 10 feet away or 20 feet away. So there's something, there's something about it. And just the community feel that I think is really magical and, and wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's, let's have a couple, let's have you read for a bit from the book to give people a flavor for the language and the subject matter. And then, then we'll talk further. Cool. So I thought I would read a couple of different, very different sections. Um, you know, the uh, kind of bookend my own book uh, with these two sections. I wanted to read uh, a section from the early period. The book's, the book's cut up into six chapters. Uh, the first chapter uh, looks at what I, I guess mainly call the warehouse movement, uh, you know, where, where artists are moving to Williamsburg and either renting or sometimes just occupying or squatting in, in, uh, uh, in uh, warehouses along the waterfront. And so, um, you know, I interviewed, there was a lot of, probably, the, probably that's, you know, one of the, well, probably this, the strongest component in the early days in a lot of ways was, I would say, sort of a post-punk movement. Um, but there were many elements um, in terms of the music. So, um, but I want to read uh, one of those sections. Um, just to give people the flavor of it. While warehouse parties raged in squats along the waterfront, painter, punk rocker, and filmmaker Michael X. Rose started a new series in 1991 that eventually came to be known as Radioactive Bodega. The series took its name from Radiac, the nearby processing facility that, that worked with radioactive waste, um, but that was eventually closed down uh, owing to consistent activity, uh, activism, especially within the Puerto Rican community. The, uh, the events took the music fests out of the abandoned warehouses and literally into the streets, uh, one, par one participant stated. They generally took place outside of a warehouse between North 7th and North 10th Streets at Kent Avenue that had once been an old munitions factory, uh, which has since been torn down. The loading docks were about four feet off the ground and very wide, so they functioned as ideal stages for musical events. Michael Rose had often wandered down along the waterfront by himself to escape the oppressive summer heat, and it occurred to him then uh, that it would be a nice place for, to hold concerts. He later wrote, it was a place of post-apocalyptic post loneliness and desolation, right smack dab in the throbbing chaos of New York City. It was anyone's who was punk enough for the using. In another way, it began as a response to the warehouse movement, which Rose perceived as focused on art school and trust fund kids, 
although he had studied painting at an art school himself, he did not identify with that, uh, with what he viewed as an elitist arts culture uh, that often emanated from such institutions. His events featured punk rock more than any other venue up to that time. The series began under the provisional name of October Revolution, and, and he used images from communist propaganda posters intended as tongue-in-cheek humor. After it drew disconcerted reaction from the predominantly Polish population of nearby Greenpoint, however, he changed the name to Radioactive Bodega. An ethnically diverse squatter community dwelled inside the warehouse and outside along the waterfront north of Kent Avenue. It was almost like a shanty town that was there. Um, occupied uh, areas that are, that are now that now constitute several public parks. Uh, they they lived in a, a collection of tents or other temporary structures made from plywood and other, uh, with tarp or zinc roofs. Uh, cooked over fires and traded junk or fished out of the river. Some people hollowed out cave-like uh, enclosures within mounds of trash and debris to create other living spaces. Spontaneous music often happened within the community on on old guitars and other instruments. <clears throat> And so uh, Michael Rose went and kind of uh, connected with his community and actually uh, they showed him how to bootleg uh, electricity from the street so that he could uh, wire up uh, the, the music, musicians on the stage. Um, the, first October, the first October Revolution event held on October 12th, uh, 1991, featured a number of local punk bands. In the flyer for the event, Rose wrote, not street theater, the street is theater. Parades, bank robberies, fires, and sonic explosions focused street attention. A crowd is an audience for an event. Re release of crowd spirit can accomplish social facts. Riots are a reaction to police theater. Thrown bottles and overturned cars are responses to a dull, heavy-fisted, mechanical, and deathly show. Perhaps, uh, sorry, excuse me, people fill the street to, to express special public meaning and hold human communion to ask what's happening. So yeah, this whole process of, of uh, you know, bringing in bands uh, and having, he had a series of, of basically festivals. I think the largest one drew several thousand people, if you can imagine, to a completely informal uh, music venue. Effectively, there are these loading docks sticking out at the backside of this warehouse where he uh, just had the bands, you know, stage themselves. And um, there's a big kind of open area um, kind of a, a adjacent to the sort of shanty town that had developed there. And so this whole community kind of merged and, and um, uh, performed there. So, you know, that gives a little bit of a flavor of kind of the, the most, in, in a way, the most informal uh, concerts that happened in the early days of Williamsburg. I wanted to take us to the last one because there's a lot of actually uh, continuity in a way. Um, in some ways, I, say, I sometimes say this, this uh, history of uh, music in, in Brooklyn you know, begins with the opening of a, of a venue called the Lizard's Tale, and, and it, it ends with the closing of, of, a, of the venue Death by Audio. So let me talk about Death by Audio for a minute. Can you describe the venue a little bit? Or maybe sure. that's in the text. Yeah, I, I think it'll be, it's a bit in the text, actually. Death by Audio, located at 49 South 2nd Street, was the last great DIY venue in Williamsburg. It opened in the spring of 2007 and became the core of an underground scene that was a fertile site for experimentation as improvised music collided with rock, punk, metal, and noise. The club came, to, came directly out of the punk aesthetic with every inch of the interior painted, graffitied, or covered in band stickers. At one end, there was a makeshift stage in a room that could hold 75 people with an adjoining room in, room in the back for overflow that also had a speakeasy bar. Uh, <clears throat> Before the venue ran its own bar, people would bring in, would often bring beer and keep it in a collective cooler. It was sold off the books for cheap. Once the bar was put in, it was just a table in front of a refrigerator, usually stocked with one type of beer and perhaps two types of liquor. So, um, you know, it had much of the aesthetic, I think, of some of the sort of the, you know, punk, New York punk venues from, from earlier decades in a lot of ways. Um, for a lot of us, multi-instrumentalist Weasel Walter explained, Death by Audio was a place where they understood what we were doing, and they welcomed us, whether we had a good night or not. We could do whatever we wanted, book whoever we wanted, and the sound was okay. They paid us if people showed up. That's what it takes for a scene to happen. So I think about that a lot. I mean, just, you know, what, what, what is it that, that makes music really take off, and how, you know, how do venues uh, function? Um, 
Death by Auto was one of the most important venues for the development of a music that Walter had turned to brutal prog back in 2000 to delineate bands that were more focused on dissonance and intensity uh, than other forms of progressive rock. Uh, incorporating elements of progressive rock, punk, post-punk, no-wave, free jazz, math rock, heavy, uh, sorry, heavy metal, grindcore, and Japanese noise, Brutal Prague was loud, aggressive, and challenging to audiences. So, um, you know, this, this section that kind of I really go through and talk about a series of bands uh, that, you know, that really were central to that scene. Um, throughout the book, uh, I really do go kind of venue by venue. I wanted to get a sense of, you know, what was... How is Death by Audio different from Zebulon, and how is that from diff, you know different from another venue? And um, try to try to capture the culture you know that kind of surrounded each of these venues. Um, you know what you know what was the music uh, culture at each of these places, and then talk uh, as much as I can about individual bands and, and what happened in the live setting. I, I really did try to focus on on what the bands were like live, as opposed to what they were like uh, as uh, on their records. Um, to try to capture, you know, these bands in these spaces and to really, um, you know, think through that. So, so maybe we can, should we shift over to, do you want to, you know, shift into conversation or? Sure, if you, if you, if you've got, if you, if you don't want to read anything further. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to read more, but I, I would like, I'd love to leave space for, you know, for us to yeah, take on yeah. questions as well. You know, the, the thing, one of the things that strikes me about the book is that, <laughs> You know, like you said, maybe you were tempted to work, to talk about the, the, a broader uh, perspective on the Williamsburg scene. You know, uh, yeah. all of the uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom bands that that went on to kind of rock success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strokes, Liars. You know, all 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 of that crowd of of bands are are completely separate. I mean, you touch on them a little bit, but your your focus is yeah. really on these underground, for lack of a better word, clubs for the most part. And underground music. I mean, most of the um, most of the artists you're covering are are really pretty obscure. You know, there's not any big luminous names. It's all the people toiling and making this happen and making, like you said, you know, you don't have a scene unless people show up and people show up if they're interested in in what you're doing. And different of these venues uh, over the years in Williamsburg brought that out. You know, you know, in in the in the 90s in Manhattan, we had a club called The Cooler, which you didn't mention. And then Tonic, which you talked about, was when The Cooler was subsiding, Tonic was kind of coming up. And those were the places where experimental music could happen in, in Manhattan, two of the places. And and by the late 80s, early 90s, these places, it was, it was you know, people were getting priced out of Manhattan. A lot of the musicians were moving to Brooklyn. And that's that's the, the root I guess of of this whole scene you're talking about. What what uh, like did you know a lot of these people personally, or were you writing uh, more objectively about the different different groups that came and go? I have to say, I mean, I'm familiar with a bunch of these venues. There's a bunch that I was not familiar with, and this was a period when Sonic Youth was traveling a lot, and we were not in such regular touch with what was going on over uh, across the river, even you know. And so a lot of the names that uh, I read about in the book are, are, are kind of new to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's really interesting to me to see uh, all these different people uh, covered. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think from the beginning, I really wanted to cover, I mean, I didn't care actually whether the musicians were well-known or not, you know, in terms of who I was including, I really wanted to go after um, the music that I really thought was trying to break new ground. So I think a lot, you know, a lot of experimental music is not necessarily, you know, I would say most of it is not commercially, you know, commercially successful or what, you know, if you want to put it in those terms. But I think the, you know, I really was looking for bands that were trying to break into something new, um, regardless of genre and regardless of whether their records were successful or not. Um, you know, and also try to, to the extent possible to sort of detect, you know, how one experiment might need lead might lead to another experiment. You know, did I know people? Um, I was beginning to get to know some of these musicians via their music, probably around 2005, when I was still, I was at that, you know, I had moved to New York in 2000, I left, um, went to grad school, and then I came back in 20, let's see, 2011, 
Um, so I, there were some years that I missed, and then I was here from kind of after that um, solidly. So, you know, I've been listening to a lot of the musicians during that period where I was gone. Um, but there were certainly a lot of people that I, you know, that I met and got to know through, through the writing of the book. So I would say, you know, given that it took me <laughs> 10 years from starting doing my first interview um, to the book coming, you know, appearing in print, you know, I, I definitely got to know a lot of people through that that time, especially when I was putting on my own series. Um, I felt like that was also a way, you know, that I got to know a lot of people and, and connected with a lot of the artists. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think there are several, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to, you know, what am I trying to say? I think that, you know, do we judge a music by, you know, how many awards people win or Not how much, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I, you know, so, but you know, I mean, there's a, there, there are a couple of MacArthur award winners that, that are mentioned, you know, that are, that are certainly featured in the book. And then there are people who I think, you know, very few people know. And I, I wanted to shed light on that as much as I could. Right. Yeah. You know I mean? I, and I thought, um, really it was the process of experimentation that I think had me most, you know, most fascinated. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly cover music that I personally maybe don't even want, you know, enjoy listening to, but I, I appreciated it for what it was trying to do. So I tried to go certainly beyond my own tastes. And I didn't want the book to be me saying these bands are good and these bands are bad. I don't do that really at all. I really wanted to talk, kind of get artists to talk and get as many artist voices into the book as I could kind of to create as much dialogue as I could between artists Um you know, over the span of 25 years. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious from your perspective, if we're talking about like late 80s to mid uh, teen, mid 2020 teens, mm-hmm. like what do you see as the thrust of, of the development over there in terms of like the things, like what was happening over there and what were the, what were the, the sort of like uh, either hallmarks of it or, you know, triumphs of it, I guess you would say. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a great question. I I, I have you know four hundred pages I've <laughs> four hundred pages that might speak to that in a way. I think yeah. the you know it evolved over time. Now I would say in the late eighties, really with the uprooting of the punk community or or out parts of the punk community in the East Village, you know, following the Tompkins Square riots in nineteen eighty eight, there was this push you know that that kind of where some people just got pushed out they or they got evicted or, you know, whatever. And people moved to, to Williamsburg around that time. And there was a big kind of movement there. I think that in a way formed the, that kind of undergirded a lot of what came later. Um, I've always kind of thought there was this sort of punk kind of rock edge kind of noise element un, that kind of is the through line for a lot of, I guess what we'd either call the Williamsburg or the North Brooklyn sound, mm-hmm. um, you know, where regardless of what exact genre maybe is being played, I mean, you might hear free jazz saxophone that's just as sort of searing and aggressive as an electric guitar or yeah. something, you know? So yeah. I think, you know, that kind of hard edged uh, sound, I've, I feel like has, has sort of pulled through, um, in terms of triumphs, I mean, I think there were, I mean, there, there were a lot. And I, I, I hope as people go through the book, they'll, you know, kind of jump off onto maybe artists that they haven't heard about before. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the warehouse movement and the, the all that in the early, the late 80s and early 90s, I think it was I would say if I had been there at that time, I'd probably be a different person now. And it, it just because of there were a lot of movements there then to I think really engage more than one human sense at a time. Yeah. And there was a very social movement as well as musical uh, you know, yeah. um, you know, the the environmental thing about like the, these lofts, these warehouses. But it was it really brought I mean, that community was coalescing in this period. And it w- these places helped help that happen, really, as places yeah. where people go when they were mo- when they were over there before it was, 
you know, what it is today with a million uh, venues and, and things like that. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, the, um, the late nineties, I feel like the scene kind of gained momentum. I think it got a kind of a critical mass yeah. around 98. It's, it's amazing how many musicians I interviewed who said they got there in 1998 and it just kind of kept coming up. Huh. Um, I think the word was out by that point that something was happening there and that people, you know, and also, you know, you have a really, it's like, where do the 23 year olds move? Where, where can they live? Yeah. They, they couldn't afford to live in the East village anymore. So they, you know, they were moving to, to Williamsburg or to, to other parts of Brooklyn. And so that, I think, you know, the late nineties, the, the, the pirate radio station free, free 103.9, I thought was just, one of the most interesting parts of the book to me anyway, yeah. um, you know, in terms of just people trying to seize the airwaves, it was kind of pushback against kind of corporate takeovers, which really kind of swept through in the mid late nineties um, and um, use the airwaves themselves as a, as a potential medium for, for sonic art. I thought that was really interesting. And because they broadcast a lot of live shows via their, their micro pirate radio station, um, you know, it became a flashpoint for the community. So, I mean, they could show up to a person's gig and actually with the mobile transmitter and, and, and broadcast right from there. So, you know, stuff like that, I thought was really interesting. And I think the, you know, the loft, the loft movements, I mean, I think lofts, the reason why they're so popular is artists have control in yeah. theory, right? They artists, artists have control of those spaces. So I think that any loft movement to me is a, is a triumph of a certain kind, because um, what you, I mean, you really ultimately want, artists to have some measure of self-determination in terms of um, you know, controlling their, their process, controlling how they're presenting it. Um, so, you know, I think uh, there was that special moment up into the early 2000s where artists really could do that in, in, in a place like Williamsburg. Um, I think non-commercial art, you know, it needs a space where that, you know, where people aren't having to pay thousands, you know, many thousands of dollars in rent. So uh, I think there was a time um, there where, where, where that was possible. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I think as time went on, you know, I think, uh, we kind of get closer to what we might regard as kind of more standard types of venues. You know, you have like a bar or a restaurant that hosted music and you kind of, you know, you have that. And some of those were very important. I think, I mean, Zebulon in terms of, in terms of a venue, um, you know, I think probably was, I mean, in many ways, the most important or certainly the most impactful just because it lasted for eight or nine years and had music seven nights a week. Um, there was just no equal in terms of the energy and the scheduling and everything. And they had a wide range of stuff. In the beginning, they, in particular, 2004, five, six, you know, through that period, um, you know, Zebulon really was committed to doing I would say forward-looking art. I don't mean they, they weren't later, but I think they they sort of expanded to include a lot more different things later. Early on, um, and there was it was especially open to, um, you know, to putting on artists like Charles Gale and Carl Perouche, Maurice McIntyre, and mm-hmm. um, Butch Morris, who was originally from LA, and you know, like you know, giving really giving them the stage to do what they wanted. Um, and then I think later on, of course, I mean they you know, they were having, I think, a greater range of different kinds of things. I mean, Zebulon was a real triumph. I think mean, we must must say that for sure, very clearly. Um, and uh, so many of the artists um, that I talked to, so they, you know, they felt like their work, you know, the work that they did at Zebulon propelled them onto other things later on. Um, we can look at artists like, um, whether it's you know, people like Mary Halverson or whether it's, you know, someone like Montana Roberts, incredible alto saxophone player. Um, you know, she, she did a lot of her early shows that, you know, both of them, both of them did a lot of the early shows at Zebulon. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, having a venue that really believes in artists and pushes for artists, um, you know, uh, allows art, artistic kind of freedom on the stage, I think is, um, you know, is always a triumph. Of course, eventually Zebulon, Zebulon closed in 2012, moved to L.A. So uh, yeah. L.A. Uh, L.A. won out on that, that exchange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it remains a pretty uh, pretty interesting venue out, yeah. out there. So yeah. 
what do you you said the rise and fall so how how do you see William the the scene there since 2014? You know, is this a is this a a victim of economic development? Is it is that the whole story pretty much? Or uh, that, I mean, there there is some of that. I, but I, I would also say art artists' resilience is always impressive to me. I would actually say, I mean, the real turning point was 2005 um, when there were a few years up to that point where the city was was considering re, re, uh, rezoning the neighborhood. And it, much, most of the neighborhood was zoned industrial, which meant that developers couldn't move in and, and, and build basically new development, you know, condos along the waterfront and all of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, Michael Bloomberg um, did, you know, as the story goes, I mean, I, this is just what I've heard, uh, the story that's sort of retold is that Bloomberg was driving down the FDR, which is, you know, the highway along the, the coast there uh, on Manhattan looked across and saw Williamsburg and sort of was like, well, wouldn't it be great if we could actually do something with that there? And, um, and then and if you actually look at the language of the rezoning, it refers to it basically as, as unproductive landscape in the city that needs to be transformed into creating, um, you know, tax base, like increasing the tax base. It's literally, it's literally that stark. Um, if you remember, you know, the like the, the great champion of that, that opposed Robert Moses and er, decades earlier, Jane Jacobs actually wrote a very powerful letter um, in which she supported a community plan, which had come up with a much more nuanced way of, of you know, maybe rezoning certain parts and, and keeping other parts, um, you know, controlled by artists and controlled by you know, local um, owners and so forth. I mean the, the 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 transformation in 2005. Within a year or two, the vast majority of artists that live in Williamsburg got evicted. It was that bad. So, um, in some cases, you had buildings that might have, um, you know, right around McCarran Park, there were buildings that had you know dozens and dozens of artists within a particular building, especially a bigger building. Um, and there were cases in which you know you had dozens of people, you know, dozens of artists being evicted at a time. Um, you know, the developers from that point on pretty much had all the power. So it's also not only were they redeveloping, but prices skyrocketed as well. So when I think of Seth Mastorka, who started a, a you know, he's, a, he's a saxophone player. He studied with Anthony Braxton at Wesleyan and he came, I think around 2000 or just before. And, um, you know, he, uh, you know, he found his loft which was what I think twenty five hundred square feet for twelve hundred dollars in in two thousand. I mean that's a that's a that's a decent space. Uh, yeah. You could do quite a lot of stuff with it. And he he actually ran a loft for eleven years. It's it's amazing it lived it lasted that long. Um, you know, but I'm you know eventually spaces like that I'm sure now either don't exist. And I, I actually meant to say as you were talking before about me kind of being a denizen in some of these places and, and really getting into the venues. In the later years where I was writing, kind of finishing up the project, I, you know, there were certainly venues that I knew about or venues that I had been to, but there were quite a lot of venues who I, that I had never been to personally. And so I started going around systematically, just walking up and down these streets. And not only do are none of the venues there, not one of them survives that I can think of. Um, in most cases, the buildings aren't even there. The developers have taken them down, replaced them with new buildings. So, you know, it's really intense. And I think the... You know, it's a classic story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, maybe we should be interesting, and then the developers move in and kick the artists out and, and, yeah. and reap yeah. financial rewards from it. Yeah, right. I don't want to uh, not have time for some questions, but I have another question I want to ask you. There's there's a, a sort of an index in the back where you've got yeah. uh, recordings to listen to. You didn't make a playlist, which I wonder if you had thought about. Um, I would love to do that. This is a massive uh, list of like, you know, albums and things like that. I think more so than than single tracks. And after the, the music recordings, there's there's two categories. There's paintings and television. <laughs> and in the paintings category, you list uh, Cubist. I think they're Cubist paintings, one <laughs> by Brock and like 15 by Picasso. And right. I want to know what that's all about for, for one thing. And then in the television category, <laughs> it's Star Trek Voyager and, and Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. 
So I, I'm just really curious, like as when I got to the end of the book and I saw that I really, I, I don't remember reading too much about those subjects in the book, but like the, what's with the Picasso paintings? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> well, the, the, both of those probably have a fairly, I think both of those are fairly uh, uh, easy to explain. The paintings um, I listed, uh, because I look, I, I, there's, there's a number of Cubist, um, mostly Picasso paintings that I, Took a look at because of the there's an instrument kind of inventor his name's ken butler yeah. plays a lot of different kinds of guitars he makes you know he's made instruments out of tennis rackets and guns and um you know golf clubs and all sorts of different types of things you know transforming them into into musical instruments yeah he's a legend. Um, and he talked a lot about how uh, this era of paintings were actually quite influential on his sort of vision for a lot of the instruments that he creates. So that that's that's the that's the explanation behind the paintings. And I just had to go and look at them and think about them. And then I was try, also sort of trying to look at the instruments that he had created. Yeah, um, brilliant figure. Um, you know, and I think it also goes to show, you know, that when I think about experimentation, it can it can actually take on a lot of forms. Experimental wow. types of performance. You know, experimental sounds experimental um you know medium you know me, experimental media uh yeah. you know so yeah and i think the television um if i remember right i think those were um those are <laughs> the the drummer mark edwards i remember mentioning to me and i think i mentioned this in the section where i wrote about him uh brilliant brilliant drummer by the way mark edwards uh he played with cecil taylor in the 1970s um, David S. Ware later on, and, and you know he's led many of his own groups for the past, I guess, about thirty years. Anyway, he, he talked about how he was very influ uh, influenced by science fiction as a kid. So, um, you know, I went back and <laughs> looked at some of the, you know, looked at Star Trek and, and so forth to, to try to you know, get a sense of where he was coming from. So, yeah, so you know, a lot of a lot of people were kind of dealing, I think, with cross genre and cross um, disciplinary types of influences in this scene. Uh, which yeah. I guess makes sense when it comes to sure. experiment. And certainly those yeah. Cubist paintings were radical and under and not understood yeah. in, in their day. You know, you were talking yeah. about Ken Butler, and I want to mention that I was I really appreciated that there were lots of images through the book, lots of photographs of all the different spaces, different people in different configurations, great pictures of Ken's instruments. Uh, yeah. I, I thought it was really great to, to have so many uh, visual reference points in, in the book. Yeah, Duke was generous. They gave me, I think, 50 photos for the book. You know, they allowed me to have 50 photos. So, so I tried to make the, the best of it. Yeah, yeah. Do we want to um, open it up to some questions? Yeah, let's do that. That'd be nice. Okay, and are they in the chat? Maybe Peter? Yeah, can... we've, got, okay. um, we've got some stuff coming through. Diane asks, is there any kind of gathering or celebration of the music and artists of the scene? I would... Hmm. I would say, I think, I mean, it's not one single one, but there definitely are communities within, because there's, there's so many different communities that kind of overlapped. And um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm fair to say, I think I'm right to say that there are probably many artists in this book that didn't know about some of the other artists in the book. I mean, it's just so much that was happening through the years in Brooklyn. Um, and the way I think uh, that people kind of come and go, come into the scene and leave the scene uh, a person might be there for five or ten years, and then then they move upstate, or they go to New Jersey, or they move to Philadelphia, or they go to New Haven, or um, or they go some completely other part of the country or something. Um, so there, I don't think there's any single one, but I, I do know of, of artists you know who've organized you know 20th anniversaries of particular events, and um, you know there have been certainly um you know some key moments within the scene that should be marked i mean there was one last year i when when lee asked me about tri you know triumphs i think one of the most interesting events in the book uh if i can backtrack to that is is a thing that was called the brooklyn free music festival in 2002 may of 2002 um where to kind of lift spirits in this kind of post 9-11 environment um there were a couple of artists that, that uh, one of them I think worked in a, a had this big workspace in a in a in a warehouse, something like twenty thousand square feet to work with. So he cleared it out and and spent a month or two, basically building in bars and stuff, and had um, music events on two floors 
something like 50 or 60 bands played um, with, with many of the events occurring on the rooftop. It just shows you what was possible in those days. I mean, nowadays you get a, you'd get a noise complaint complaint in about two minutes um, or two seconds. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the changing urban landscape, you know, is something that I think uh, yeah, has just evolved so much. So anyway, yeah, I, I think there should be more to mark, you know, the anniversaries and, and kind of, you know, ways of, of memorializing maybe this past um, because the physical landscape has been removed. It's not there anymore. Um, the map that I had, um, the, the three maps that I have in the book, you know, towards the beginning, um, they're kind of haunting if, if you go around and, and try to look for these places. So there, there should be more that's done. Um, I mean, the fact that I most, you know, many of the archives that I accessed were in musicians' basements or attics or, uh, you know, wherever, you know, in, in a box that they had in storage. Um, you know, the, I tried to do what I could to, to um, kind of, you know, bring light to a lot of this. But I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of archival material right there that's, you know, it's going to be lost if somebody does something to preserve it. Yeah, it should be collected for sure. Yeah. Got another one, Peter? Yeah. Um, so Mark says, this is a must-buy book. Yes, right on. Buy it, folks. We posted the links. As a Brit, without much knowledge of this scene, what is one track that I must listen to after this meeting? Ooh. I always try to dodge these because I feel like I can't boil yeah. it down. Um of your 10 I, children, which is your favorite? <laughs> that's no, exa- that's that how I feel when I'm asked that question. <laughs> I mean, I could just, I could, I could name a, a, a number of artists. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, interestingly, I would say a lot of the, a lot of the bands in the first chapter didn't necessarily record a lot of their work. It's pre-digital. For the most part, in those days, so um, you know, I would say much of, I guess, what we call discography, you know, from the earlier era. I would say it was, you know, I mean, it, it's it's kind of crazy to think about. It. I, I, you know, a lot of that stuff has just been lost, um, or they're on really hard to find. I mean, I, I suddenly found myself collecting like seven-inch, um, like Williamsburg punk records and <laughs> things. Um, some of which I could find and some I had to hunt and hunt and hunt for. Um, but wow, um, a single track. I don't know if I can do a single track, but I can, I can rattle off a few things. I mean, I would say, you know, uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, there were so many bands that were converging on Williamsburg. And so just within that era, um, I mean, you have such a wide variety of things happening. Um, you know, in sort of minimalist noise types of settings. I mean, the PSI is a band that I always thought was really interesting. Um, um, Nonak Blues Band from that era, I thought was just, you know, such a visionary band. And I actually did a um, did a, a book event a few, well, I guess it's a month, month and a half ago, actually, um, with David Nuss, who's one of the leading figures in that group. Um and then, and then you have, and you have this sort of wave of, of, I guess you'd say, sort of creative musicians or, or free jazz musicians um, around the, the turn of the millennium. I think that that did a lot of interesting things. Anthony Braxton's students were hugely in, impactful. You have like Mary Halverson, um, uh, you know, Taylor Hobynum, that kind of wave of people that were coming down um, from Middletown. Um, wow. And there's just too many people to name from that era. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you have also another conversion. You know, I think Nate Woolley, the trumpet player coming from the West Coast, um, you know, he's, he's done some really incredible work. Um, you know, the drummer Mike Pride was really, really uh, active during, around that time. Um, you know, uh, I want to give a shout out to the saxophone player who I know is who's, who's attending, Ross Moshe Burnett, who... Um, you know, uh, was born in New York and and, and grew up in, uh, he was very active with his music now uh, units. Um, there's just so much stuff. I mean, you have bands like, um, I mean, going forward from that, I mean, you have a wave of people that came in from 
Manhattan that started to play in, in Brooklyn a lot, especially at Zebulon. Figures like Charles Gale, um, who's an incredible tenor saxophone player. Um, I think, you know, maybe the most, uh, wow, uh, maybe I'll say this. Yeah, I, I think he's the most interesting uh, saxophone player since John Coltrane. Um, I mean, you have figures like Butch Morris, um, who put down, you know, it's kind of put his trumpet down to, to, to develop a whole conduction technique where he would actually be conducting his bands live and giving different signals to different people and really, you know, kind of using his, his position as conductor to, to create a kind of, um, orchestra sound. Um, you know, Jessica Pavone, I think is actually a really, really interesting figure. I think, um, viola player, uh, played a lot with Mary Halverson, but has led her own bands. I think her solo records, uh, which she started doing, I, I think about 10, 15 years ago, she put out, started putting out a series of solo records. I also love her band, but I think her solo records are absolutely genius. Um, so, I mean, I think she's a figure that deserves more attention. I, I mentioned Matina Roberts earlier. Um, you know, she now has a long series of records under the name Coin Coin. I think it's a 12 part series. I think she just released the fifth record. I think she's an absolute visionary. I often say it on the, I can't believe that she hasn't gotten MacArthur yet. Um, what else? I mean, I think Weasel Walter was really interesting. You know, he's a really interesting figure. Um, you know, he was deep into the death by audio scene. You know, he's someone who I thought, you know, just kind of had a transformative presence. Um, a lot of other musicians talked about him as, as, as inspirational and kind of a leading figure within the kind of hard edge, you know, post no wave type of, you know, improvised music. Um, you know, uh, the band Little Women, that was really interesting, very kind of hard edge and confrontational type of, you know, two saxophone quartet. I could go on and on and on. So I don't think I can track, but I hope that gives give you some 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 idea, uh, you know, gives you some some maybe way, you know, places to start. Yeah. So we have a question from another Mark. And actually this could be directed at both of you. Um what were some of the new musical methods that were developed during the experimentation of this period? Hmm. Lee, do you want to start? Or I, you know. No, I think that this, since we're focusing on Williamsburg, I'm, I'd be curious to hear your answer to this question. I mean, in a way, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, the, again, there's all, there's, I think there's probably, a, there's quite a lot that I could say. Um, because this community in Williamsburg is obviously yeah. coming out of a lot of stuff that had happened previously in Manhattan and elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I know you talk a bit about uh, the, the Japanese noise scene in the early 90s and how that would, that influenced a lot of people in a lot of places. And that was one of these elements uh, in, in, in uh, Williamsburg that was, was happening. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I, no, no, no. That, that's great. Lee. Thank you. Um, and please interrupt at any time. <laughs> you know, if um, I could add just my, you know, say a couple of things, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Death by Audio. And, and I think because there was a kind of an unbridled creativity, like aesthetically, and I think also technically, what a lot yeah. of people might not know is that they also kind of split off and were a pedal maker. And they would create these insane, insane pedals like uh, the Apocalypse and um, I mean, just these like things like uh, total annihilation, I think was another one. I mean, and they're really tongue in cheek, but the, the design itself was gorgeous. And a lot of these things are like artifacts, but they were also pushing the sonic envelope <laughs> to places where, you know, later, you know, like within five years, you've got like a hundred other makers out there kind of doing this crazy stuff. And I don't know, Lee, you might have a few things to say about that. <laughs> well, I, I know some of those pedals, but what it made me think of was how one of my impressions about what that Williamsburg scene was about was, you know, they were like, they were, it was, it was really youth oriented and they were across the river from all the heavy stuff in Manhattan, the, you know, the gallery world or the highfalutin world of big clubs. And it was like, they didn't have to, my impression of, of Williamsburg in that period was that like, they didn't really have to give a shit about anything and they could be as weird or funky. There was a kind of a funky community element to it. And, people were just felt free to do to do stuff in a, in a very 
in a way where they knew that like they were they were not under a heavy duty spotlight you know so it was a little bit easier to be experimental without uh you know without the whole world watching basically in a sense i think you're absolutely right I, a lot of people even said that in a way because it was a little bit off the beaten track it kind of gave people a little a measure of freedom to kind of do what they wanted um, without yeah. the pressure of having to like, okay, if you don't bring 50 people to the club, you're not going to get a gig here again. You know, instead it was, you know, often more open. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now just to talk about methods or techniques, I think one thing that I really began to think about when I wrote this book that I hadn't thought about, I think in as much detail before was how the digital revolution has allowed people to do so many things, but for that, people had to, you know, a lot of sounds that we now take for granted back in, you know, the pre kind of pre-digital era had to be created physically. It was yeah. interesting. I mean, I thought I think of like say the DJ collective La La Landia, which I thought was a really interesting group. Um, you know, they had a they had a, a performance space that they called El Sensorium, and they considered themselves omnisensorialists, which meant they were trying to engage with all of your senses uh, at one time. Um, I, 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 I mean, I joke about that. I think if I had gone there, I, I don't even know what I would be doing now. I'm sure it'd be something, you know, whatever I'd, something else would be doing, you know, doing my life. I think that, you know, um, you know, I think that, you know, they talked about creating an entire experience. So, I mean, is that a, is that a different kind of, it's a very sort of, um, You know, just trying to saturate people with, you know, kind of surrounding them with things. So, um, you know, you had people, uh, you know, maybe spontaneously creating performances from within a within the audience or something. And then you might have one of the things the DJs is they created an array of of record players that they put on the wall, and he wanted certain sections to repeat. So he'd kind of he basically create a loop. And you do that by sort of physically hold, I don't know, kind of tying down the arms so it could only go a certain distance and then it would, you know, whatever, kind of go through this loop. Uh, but then he'd, he'd put maybe, I think he said 12 of those or like a dozen of those on the wall next to each other and they'd all be playing different things. So he'd create this kind of almost like, I don't know, like music concrete or, or like, you know, like a collage in a way of, of these different sounds. Um, so, yeah, I think of like, there's a, there was a lot of that. A lot of the noise bands, now, now a lot of noise is turning knobs, which is great. It can be, a, it can be brilliant. But a lot of noise in the, you know, in the 80s, you know, there was, you know, in the 90s, there were people that were like creating noise by using non-traditional instruments, incorporating a fan or a, um, you know, different pieces of metal, um, uh, you know, getting kind of experimental with the what types of percussion that they were using, you know, um, you know, the the sort of exploration of various types of metallic sounds. Um, so, I mean, I think of like the, the digital revolution made some of that no longer necessary. Um, or you could say, I don't know, maybe, maybe something was lost in that transmission because they, and say, excuse me, in that transfer, that transition, excuse me, um, you know, in that it's, it's you know, there, it, I think the way that we receive that is a little bit different now. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say those are the, probably the biggest things, those types of innovations um, towards the use of technology that, that really just had a deep impact. But I mean, there are tons of different, you know, I would say, you know, evolution of techniques on various instruments, uh, the way that people are thinking about those instruments, um, you know, probably too much to say, but I mean, a lot of that's in the book and, and musicians certainly talk about it. Yeah. Cisco, may I ask a question? Uh, I, I'm really curious to know, like, how you pieced this together, and you know what that whole process was like, and and because yeah. I imagine, like, you know, you you did a whole bunch of interviews, but then you know, I'm sure there's like, you know, other materials that you're accessing too, and cross referencing, and ten years yeah, is a long time. It is a long time. Um, well, I mean, I began. I did my first interviews in 2013. And I think I thought, well, I, I'll just talk to enough people until it starts to make sense. That's honestly was my initial method. And after about two or three years of that, I realized, 
I needed something else to kind of pull together. The other thing I did in that time um, is that I created a, I guess we call it a sessionography or a gigography. I went through every publication I could find, whether it was, you know, newspapers, the New York Times, the New York City Jazz Record, you know, very you know, a number of punk zines. And just I just tried to like any music publication that I could find and just started to record lists of gigs. And I just recorded them by, um, you know, I, just, I just made this massive uh, word file. It's literally an 857 page word file that covers mainly between 1998 and 2014. The earlier the earlier years were much more difficult to, to kind of um, to document. Um, I think before '98, you know, the it was truly underground. Whereas, you know, by the turn of the millennium, I think it was sort of partially above ground. But I wanted to be able to see what the big picture was, and it was an overwhelming big picture. I mean, 857 pages of literally just each line, or you know each line or every other line or something would be a different concert that happened. I arranged them by venue and then within venue by, by date. But it allowed me to begin to kind of see like who really was focusing on Williamsburg, who played, you know, what bands really played in the venue. When I looked at Zebulon, for example, I didn't look at the most famous people who have ever played at Zebulon. I looked at the bands that, that really kind of made that their home and that was their yeah. home base. And they, maybe they played, anywhere from, you know, three, four, five to maybe 20 gigs in a year, depending on, you know, their frequency and stuff, or, or maybe 10 gigs over the span of three years, depending on the band, something like that. Because um, I, I really wanted to think about how did these spaces impact the musicians? How did these musicians impact these spaces? You know, like that's the, that's the really the dynamic. So, um, so the method, yeah, I think that's when I, when I, Kind of put that gigography together that allowed me then to begin to see how to break it off into pieces that i could then really write about up until that point it was overwhelming and i remember thinking how am i going to do this i have all these dis disconnected interviews how, how am i going to find a narrative and then honestly the the the, the gentrific gentrification narrative just emerged very organically <laughs> Out of the interviews and the, and the the material, you know, when, and once I started to map out where the venues were, you look at 2005, you look at 2006, you look at 2007, and it's you know it's like within those two years, it's just like okay everything everything and sort of along the coast you know the, the the river was 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 gone. So spatializing it was I think maybe the third component. Uh, I had never really done extensive oral history work before this, but now I, I mean I, I enjoyed it so much that I want it to be a part of probably everything I do going forward. I always want there to be an oral history component. I mean, I, I'm a historian. I was trained, you know, to work in archives. It can also it can often be very disconnected. You know, you're reading something about the past. There's very maybe very few human voices in there a lot of the time. Um, so I really wanted to bring in those human voices. And so, um, so that was, I think those are the components. And then, I, you know, I tried to draw it together and in the middle of writing this book, I also took a break and I wrote the book on William Parker. And I think that was actually a necessary break. When I came, you know, I, I basically from 2016 to 2019, took off three years from this book. And uh, I worked with William on that book. And when I came back to it, then I was really able to, I think somehow see I was just too close to the material for those earlier years to really be able to disseminate what was, you know, what was important, what was significant, you know, yeah. so, yeah, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I sometimes say, and I actually truly believe this, that I can't, I really don't feel like I can effectively edit my own work until I've forgotten what I said to a certain degree, like, okay, I haven't looked at that chapter in six months, I maybe, you know, I might have a general idea of what I said, but I don't remember the specifics. And then you go back and you just, you just feel less tied to it. Like, oh, wait, this paragraph doesn't need to be here, or these details are unimportant or whatever. And then you can kind of, you know, read it down. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, we find ourselves at the top of the hour. Lee, was there anything further that you were curious about or want to bring up or? Uh, no, I just, for, for anyone who hasn't seen the book, I wanted to talk, uh, 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 um, Cisco mentioned these maps at the front, and there's a series of three maps that outline 
the, I forget what the dates are, but there's an early one where there's just a little smattering of clubs. And then there's a middle one before the zoning restructuring where there's just a ton of clubs on the map. And then after the zoning, you see them dwindling away again. And it's just in three quick little visual things, you know, on, on a couple pages, you, you get kind of a, the story uh, that's being told right there. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, ever grateful to you both for this illuminating discussion and just the references alone are worth the price of admission. I mean, uh, City Lights has always valued the Oven Garden in all of its forms. And I really feel like this book is an important addition um, just about how scenes emerge, you know, also just an excellent resource and help us better understand their life cycles and, and really how we can encourage and, and kind of generate I guess you could say all tomorrow's parties, so to speak. So uh, thank you, Cisco, for for bringing this into being. I uh, thank you, Lee, for doing the honors tonight. Very grateful to you for that. And thank to you. all of you in the audience, I see Maureen Russell of the San Francisco um, like Rock and Roll Book Club, all kinds of friends in the audience and a few folks from the East Coast. Hey, thank you for coming. Uh, also want to remind everyone, we have posted links with which you may purchase copies of the book. Better yet, if you are in the Bay Area, and you're in the hood, come on down, browse our stacks. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We are open seven days a week now, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We're getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. And today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti through public events like this one, our publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers writers, and independent thinkers. So thank you everyone so long. We hope you'll take care of yourselves and see you soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.